Today we continue our series, Struck, as Steve said, and the struck moments have all been different, different sorts of moments. Today is essentially going to be a star-struck moment, it's a, a story of somebody getting confronted with a person who uh, they don't expect, who is an, an idol of theirs, somebody that they look up to. I don't know if you've had a star-struck moment. I haven't had many. In fact, I struggled to think of one, and that may say a lot about uh, me or my life or something. The the only star-struck moment I can really remember, and it was a big one for me, and some of you, they will, you will stare at me blankly. Start now. Just It, it was a soccer player. <laughs> Unusual, huh? A Dutch soccer player. But at the time... A guy named Johan Cruyff was my favorite player in the world. And he was probably, in my opinion, the best player of a generation of soccer in Europe. Three times player of the year. He was phenomenal. And I learned a lot of stuff in terms of how I played from him. I copied some of the things he did because they fit how I played. I did not do it like him. <laughs> I didn't revolutionize soccer as he did. However, I, I copied a bunch of stuff from him. And then there was a the day I was at a... American soccer stadium, and I saw Johan Cruyff sitting alone in a, in a box seat as I was walking up the, the aisle, and I was, you know, you get that moment, I was sort of, a little shortness of breath, I was like, I was with him, I said, there's Johan Cruyff. They, they knew what that meant, so it, you know, went somewhere. And I, th- here's the thing, I didn't know what to do. What I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to sit down and have a conversation. You know that move that you do down the side? I wanted to have a conversation. I wanted to talk to him how it felt like to revolutionize the Barcelona soccer club or what it felt like to play in the World Cup final. I wanted to talk to him. Nothing. Blank. And so what I did is I walked up to the program and I said, uh, Johan, could you sign this? He is, he's smoking. He was a chain smoker. Very European. He's smoking. He has his head down. I put a program, a program in a pen. He goes like this. A moment of drama. Hmm. He goes like this. Wow. That was meaningful. That was it. That was the moment. Starstruck. And afterwards, I got nothing from it. Absolutely nothing. I have no idea where that autograph is because I don't care about autographs. I just didn't know what else to do at the moment. So you may have had other starstruck moments when you were before somebody you greatly respected, admired, and you know that feeling. It's like, what do I do now? Okay, today's story, somebody has a true starstruck moment of somebody at a slightly elevated plane above even Johann Cruyff. And, uh, but first I want to tell you the guy's story. And, and the story is of a guy named John. We call him John the Baptist. And John was Jesus' cousin, uh, and his, from, very, the, from their birth, there seemed to be this connection between them. It's as if John and Jesus' destiny were in some way going to be linked. And uh, John, at, uh, at some point in his early adulthood, sort, sort of went rogue, at least I think according to his parents, how they would have viewed it. Went rogue, he strapped on wilderness gear and went out into the woods eating and desert eating locusts and honey and uh, began preaching these messages. And lots of people came. He was in the areas around cities. He never went in. He called people out to desert, wilderness. And he preached messages that lots of people came, came to. 
The interesting thing about John, who we call John the Baptist, is that he was utterly fearless. He seemed to be afraid of no one, no one's opinion, no consequences. He had a riveting, hard-as-nails message that no matter who came before him, he delivered it without hesitancy. And just so you get a sense of the personality and nature of his message, I, w- I want you to hear just one little sample. I'm gonna, and I'm going to go back and read prior to this in, in a few minutes. But this, I'm going to read a little section from the book of Luke, the third chapter. And Luke is one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus. And this is John, okay? He's got a crowd coming out to him. So, woohoo, success. This is what he says to him. As they come out, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And now let's turn to our hymnals. I mean, there was nothing about that message that seems particularly user-friendly. And what we discover along the way is that John said this to anybody. The religious elite, political elite, they'd come before him, exact same message. Hey, brood of vipers, what do you think you're doing here? Why? Why was his message so adversarial? Well, I I think you'll see why when I read. I'm going to show you some of what his message was and how he was approaching people and why he had this sort of edge to it, what point he was trying to get across. Earlier than that, just before that passage, we get an account of, of, of John, and it says in the 15th year, and then it goes through a bunch of political people. Okay. And then the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah was a, a prophet who wrote about 700 years previous to this. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John is calling people out to him. And as he does so, a passage is quoted that exemplifies what he's about. The book of Isaiah, as I said, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in it, it it writes in in its contemporary time. It writes to the people of that era and things that are going on politically and spiritually and socially, all sorts of things like that. But it also periodically telescopes forward and looks ahead with a prophecy. And that prophecy has a certain character to it. It depicts somebody who is going to come someone who is waited for, long awaited, who would bring a message of hope and salvation to humanity. But in this passage, what it says is that now right before that guy comes, the special guy, you know, the chosen one, right before that guy comes, there's going to be somebody calling out in the wilderness, make every path straight before the coming of the Lord. John's message is essentially this. Savior mankind's coming. It's going to be a big deal. Are you ready? And so as people came out, one of the things that John was trying to communicate is transformation can happen for you. 
But choice precedes transformation. Are you ready to make an actual choice about the course of your life? Or are you going to sort of wander around? And see, what happens is, I think John's looking at people coming out to him, and they're going like this. They're sitting around going, hey, there's a new guy. John the Baptist, he's kind of freaky, but it's interesting. He's got a wild message. Well, let's go out there. We'll take in the message. We'll go to lunch. It'll be great. Let's go out. And so they go out and they go, hey, another religious experience. This is going to be awesome. It's a little different than normal, but we're going to listen to John. And yes, the baptism thing, because John was baptized. That sounds fun. Why not? Let's do a baptism too. And so John looks at him and he says, are you serious? We're not doing some little religious experience here. I'm calling you to repent. Now, repent is a very simple word, really. All it means is I'm changing directions or I'm changing way of thinking. And what John is calling people to is, okay, transformation for your life is possible. You were made for God and you can have a connection with him and you can live a life of beauty and of hope, but you're going to have to actually make a choice to turn towards him not to wander around in sort of religious experiential mode. In or out. Do you want to walk with God or do you not? That's his core message. Now, as he's giving this core message and he's in full rant, Jesus comes. And this is what he says, right, right before he, Jesus appears before him, and I'm reading from Matthew chapter 3. It's just another account of the life of, of, of the, the time of John the Baptist. John, right after he says, the axe is already laid at the foot of the trees. You know, he's already called them a brood of vipers. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, full rant. He said, you think I'm scary? Just wait. I'm the, I'm the warm-up act. After me comes the real deal. After me comes somebody of such power and weight that I'm not fit to carry his sandals. Next. And as he says that, he doesn't actually say next. I, you know that, right? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Next, glare. Are you serious? Do you want to get baptized? Do you really want to change your life? Or are you playing games here? And it's Jesus. So John is struck, starstruck. Now he stands and stares at the one about whose entire message is about. He has just said that there was one that's so much greater than I, I can't carry his sandals around. I'm not, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. And now Jesus comes before him and says, I'd like to be baptized, John. John says, says that John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you, remember? And do you come to me? See, John understands his message. His, remes- his message is, you're off target. You got to get straight here. Choice precedes transformation. People make a choice. Do you want the reality of God in your life? And now Jesus comes. He says, Jesus, what in the world am I going to do? What, what are you going to repent of? 
You're the son of God. You've got no choices to make, no repentance to make. You know, you're already in. There's nobody who can save you. This is a mistake. I mean, maybe you're trying to validate my ministry. Really nice of you, but I can't baptize you. Jesus says to him, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting in him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Okay, so John doesn't. He's like, See, this is exactly what I expected. This is kind of freaky. You know, now we've got voices from heaven and things landing on him. And... But the answer that Jesus gives is fascinating to me. He says, No, John, do it. This is proper to fulfill all righteousness. Shorthand version, this is the right thing to do. Why? Jesus will, at the end of his life, set up this simple ritual called baptism as a way to be a a marking event that says essentially this, those who follow me make a deliberate choice. They draw a line in the sand and say, this is where I stand and this is who I will follow. And Jesus says, just like John, John, choice precedes transformation. Our decisions are powerful. I want to show everyone who follows me that I'm in, that I'm not dipping my toe in this. I'm fully in. I'm fully committed to the relationship I have with my Father in heaven, and I'm fully committed to the mission of people finding life and hope and peace. No, I don't need forgiveness. I understand that. But I'm all in, heart, body, mind, and soul. And so I, too, as I walk the earth, want to mark that. I want to put the line in the sand and say, all of me is committed to all of God and to all of his mission in the world because I, too, choose to live a life of beauty, peace, hope. And so he's baptized as well. In a few moments, I'm going to show you a video. It's about Dan Warren, who's going to get baptized in a while. But I want to talk to you a little bit about why Jesus so encourages us to make decisions. We are, forgive me if I'm wrong, but we are a culture and a society that would prefer not to make final decisions. Would prefer not to answer the question, what's your final answer? We would like to have some choices. Having choices taken away from us is very difficult. But even for us, often having to choose is very difficult. Can I not have one from column A and one from column B? Can I not choose the buffet approach? Decisions are hard to come by, particularly on the issues that affect us the most. We want to sometimes for good reasons, but often for others, we'd prefer to waffle. Can I make a qualified choice? Can I have some exemptions here? One of the things that Jesus demonstrates in his life over and over again, even as he's kind and good to those around him, is 
You've got to make choices. Real, honest-to-goodness choices of which way you're going to go with your life. You are undoubtedly aware that 50% plus of marriages in America fail. There's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of reasons. But one of them, assuredly, is this. We struggle with decisions. Marriage ceremonies are essentially a moment where we say, theoretically, I'm in. It's a moment where we don't say, well, kind of in. I'm going to play the field over here. We say, I'm in. Now, as many marriages that fail, I'm, by the way, I'm not giving you some moral high ground here. This is statistically verifiable. Marriages fail at a far higher rate, far higher, for people who live together for a while and then get married. Those who run these studies are not at Christian universities, and they're going, hmm, really curious. People who only live together and never make the choice to marriage have an even higher level of failure of that relationship. Why? Because there's something about making a decision. There's something about making a commitment that changes everything. Make no mistake about it. Christianity calls for decisions. And there's power in our decisions. Dan Warren. I'm married to Amy Warren and my son Hollister is uh, almost four years old. Goes to the warehouse as well, obviously. I grew up going to church, but I grew up uh, in a Christian science background. Um, it was very stoic, you know. It was very staunch. Um, didn't didn't really get much out of it. I was never the worst. I was never doing things that were really bad. Um, I was never doing anything that was wrong. Just wasn't doing the right things. Um, I was drinking with the guys on the weekend and that, but I, you know, I always worked hard at practice. I always did all my schoolwork. I never lied to my parents, um, but I just wasn't doing all the, the right things. And partially, I, I guess I didn't know what they were at that point in time. And somehow, when I moved to Louisiana, I uh, started singing. Um, just really, this passion kind of hit me that I really wanted to do that. I was singing in the car, and people said you should do it. And that was uh, that was the beginning of the end of the goodness in me at that point. Um, I just, I got caught up with the attention. I got caught up with the, somewhat of the stardom. Our, uh, our band actually got some notoriety. We were playing with some, uh, well-named bands, but somewhere along that lines and playing music, um, it just became all about me. I mean, I was all about me. I wasn't paying attention to my friends and one of them being my wife now. Um, I just wasn't really paying attention to her. It was whatever fit into my life, I would work with it. If it didn't fit into mine, I was going to alter or change it. Then I just pass it. I was sitting at a bar and I was um, looking at these girls, um, looking at me. And they were all pointing and they were laughing and they were talking. And then one of them came up and just made me an offer. And I realized at that moment at that bar that night is that they were using me more than I was ever using them. And that's when I really started trying to move away from that. Because I realized, one, I've realized these guys have been drinking all the time, doing drugs. And I never did any drugs. And I started realizing that how did I not see that? Um, 
the whole time. It was like I was blinded or oblivious to it. And I think because I didn't want to give up what I thought was this cool lifestyle. And um, just realized it was killing me. My best friend, who's now my wife, I, I, uh, we tried to date. She moved down here, and I just, again, was so focused on me. I gave her zero attention in the time she came down here that it eventually just didn't work out because uh, when you fill yourself up with yourself, you don't have much room for anything else. She was trying to get me to go to Warehouse. I went to Warehouse when it was at the Grady Cole Center. Um, she only invited me because she thought I'd like the music and said maybe that's the reason I'd get them to actually sit down and stay for that. And she was really good about uh, being persistent but not uh, pushing me. And so I, I came on my own terms every time when I could. You know, eventually I tried to date her again, and I, which was unreal for me, but I, I dated her for, it seemed like, uh, two, two years. But it, I didn't date her for two years. I was trying to court her, and she kind of didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, she had been burned once and didn't want to do it again. And for doing that so long, I just got, I got so frustrated. And uh, one of her good friends said something to me that, again, just hit home. She said, you know, I've seen a lot of the girls that you've dated now since you've been in Charlotte. And uh, I've seen how they all end up. She goes, and there's only one common denominator in all those relationships. So <laughs> maybe you need to change. So that hit home. Um, I said, she, you know, she was right. I, I needed a big change. I was, uh, I bought a house. I was home alone at the house. And uh, my room was pitch black. And it was late at night. And uh, for some reason, I just felt called to get up. And uh, I got out of bed, got on my knees. I thought I was going to start with a prayer. And uh, I just kept saying, I can't do this anymore. No exaggeration. Um, I probably said it 300 times. I said over and over again. At some point, it went from saying, I can't do this anymore, uh, to I can't do this anymore. It was like God was talking through for a guy who had been in control of everything his whole life um, and at the top of everything he had ever done, I was at the bottom. I just felt like I had done so many things wrong that I couldn't make up for. And I, um, and I wasn't really, I wasn't good enough. So even after I felt like I had saved and I was going to a warehouse, I was still dragging around um, this closed door that I, I wouldn't let open. Um, just I didn't feel like I had earned it. Didn't think I had done enough to um, deserve um, just his grace. Yeah. Uh, through coming to the church over and over again and um, one these other people's testimonials and hearing you know the things they've had to say is, is wow you know it's so interesting what you can do um, when you open up your hand and you let go of what you're holding on to because like somebody said um, I can't put something new in your hand unless you let go of what you're holding on to now um, and that one really made sense of doing that so I just one day just kind of let it go um and that day being different than to me than being saved was uh, was just that acceptance that um, I was okay. My baptism is me dropping anchor. So I'm, I always want to be able to come back to this spot and this moment in my life. So when times get tough again, I can say uh, I know I made a commitment to God. 
that I have to do the right thing in this situation and that when I made that commitment, I accepted him. So nothing wrong is going to happen here. Only the right thing is going to happen regardless of the outcome. Um, so I'm dropping anchor. All of my truly struck moments in life have been like Dan's, have been a combination of two factors. Honestly, Johann Cruyff was not a particularly struck moment, fleeting, glancing blow in my life. My truly struck moments have had two common denominators. One, something about me that I didn't expect and didn't want to know, and then a sense that I couldn't do anything on my own about it. That's why I was struck. Few of my struck moments have been like, oh, this is true about me, and now I simply become completely different. There are always those moments of clarity where I realize something about myself that I would have preferred not to have thought about or known, combined with the sense of, what am I going to do about this? And realizing that the reason why I was struck so seldom by that is because I realized I didn't know what I was going to do about it. And so when you don't know what you're going to do about something, the safest thing for your soul feels like just pushing it away. But the struck moments were when it simply came crashing through and I realized something that was unquestionably true about me. My struck moments are never about somebody else. They're about me. Dan articulated it very well. That moment of feeling like struck by something that was true about himself and then going, but what am I going to do about this? This is the heart of the message of John the Baptist and then Jesus. Jesus is trying and continues to try to help us to see something about ourselves that we would prefer not to see so that he can come into our lives and change it. He's saying to us over and over again, drop anchor. It's why baptism is used, I think. I think this is what Jesus was all about. I think this is why he gave this as an example of how we, what we ought to do in our lives. He essentially says, baptism is something I will design that everybody who follows me will do. Why? Because it will mark the moment where they realized that they were no longer dipping their toes in but we're being immersed in a relationship with God brought about only by something external, the grace of God through the death of Jesus freeing them to be back in a relationship with God now and forever. It is a moment of surrender and it's a moment of fulfillment and it's a moment where the person rises and says, now I'm no longer dabbling. I'm in. I'm dropping anchor. Here I stand. We struggle with decisions. There is power in our decisions. There's power when in those struck moments, we make a decision, we make a choice for beauty, for wholeness, for a relationship with God, for life change. Today, some of you need to drop anchor for the first time. 
I don't know what you're thinking. I don't. No idea. But my guess is some number of you in the room today has having that sort of squirrely feel inside of this may be true for me and I dabble around the edges. Am I ever finally going to drop in completely and receive a relationship with God that will change my life? Give me hope, wholeness. It's before you. It's fully available. Choice precedes transformation. Today, as we go through the rest of this service, as you watch Dan get baptized, as we do a time of response, there's a blue card that's hanging in the chair in front of you. And at some point, some of you need to just pull that card off and write your name on it and say, this day, I want to choose life and transformation. There's this great verse in the book of Joshua. This book way back in the Old Testament. And in that verse, Joshua's laying out before a group of people the simplicity that has always been at the core of Christianity. He says, you know what? You can choose a couple of different directions. But you're always going to have somebody as the God of your life. This day, choose who you will serve. It's a real power in that. Because what we often want to say is, tomorrow, I'll choose. Next week, I'll choose. But it's always about what we'll do today. And he said, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to seek to find life and wholeness somewhere. This day, choose who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I will receive the grace and the love and the forgiveness of the God who has always sought me and always longed to be my father. I will find my life there. Today, it may not be about baptism for you. And baptism, by the way, it's just a ritual. It's what it exemplifies, where the power is. But it's always true that our choices precede transformation and that your growth, your life, your healing, your wholeness is never a matter of dabbling. It's a matter of making distinct and conscious choices to engage your relationship with God, to engage the scripture, the word of God that he gave you to grow, to engage relationships with one another, to engage the moments where you're struck because your choice always will precede your transformation. Don't let this day slip by without putting a line in the sand and putting a stake in the ground and other similar metaphors and choosing who you're going to walk with and where you'll find life because you will choose to find life somewhere today. The one who loves you most and can really give you life is the Savior Jesus who died for you. Dan, why don't you come on up?